Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com Series 3, Dindianicus and the Art of Mythic Cartography Episode 1, From Vellum to Hardback An interview with Dr. Anka de Vries well, hello everyone. I am joined today uh, over the magic of the internet by Dr. Ranka de Vries. Hello, Ranka. Hi, Isolde. Ranka was my first ever tutor of old Irish grammar and is now a dear friend as well as an accomplished academic. <laughs> first of all, can you describe to us what your current position is? Yeah, I am a university le- lecturer currently at um, Utrecht University in the Netherlands in yeah. um, Celtic languages and culture. Right. And uh, so what kind of classes would you teach then? You're teaching undergraduates, yeah? Um, I'm teaching undergraduates and graduates. And uh, my teaching is usually on the literature level. So uh, it depends a little bit because over the years I've taught uh, most of the classes in the department. Uh, so ranging from Old Irish to Middle Welsh Uh, language courses, uh, a literature seminar, um, introduction to literature. I've uh, taught an introduction to linguistics as well. Brilliant. Although I haven't haven't done that in a few years, but uh, things like that. And then paleography uh, as well. Ah, yes. Which for our non-academic listeners, paleography is the reading of manuscripts. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, just to start off, one of the questions that I often find myself asking non-Irish academics or students of our old Irish literature, Mm -hmm. how on earth does a Dutch person such as yourself actually start getting interested in early Irish literature? How did you first come across it? Um, Well, it was uh, by accident, actually. Good. (laughs) (laughs) I I always really loved studying languages. And so when I was looking at subjects to study for uh, at university, um, uh, I was trying to uh, figure out what I would enjoy doing the most. So uh, one day my dad uh, took me to a, um, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a convention type thing that they have here in the Netherlands every year. Uh, where different universities come from different countries as well to uh, promote their programs. And there I saw a few universities where they had um, Celtic languages. And I immediately thought that would be really cool to study. Um, But I didn't actually think you could do it in the Netherlands until I found out that at Utrecht University you could do it as a... Uh, as a specialization Um, and so I started off you couldn't do it from the beginning so I started off studying classical languages and then I transferred and did medieval studies um, uh, together with Celtic studies Um, and it's just I don't I don't really know that's how I I got to study it Um, uh, but I'm I'm not really sure um, how I exactly decided that I right. would really enjoy these languages. I, I, they had materials there the, at the convention to show me, and it just all looked very, uh, very exciting. Yeah. Um, and um, one of the things that I liked very much was um, uh, King Arthur and uh, legends surrounding oh, yeah. King Arthur. Uh, and I knew he was a Celtic, you know, there was a Celtic background there. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the... Uh, one of the reasons, I suppose. So you would have had maybe uh, some contact before with um, medieval literature. Um, mm-hmm. So is, is that something that, you know, you might have 
read before coming to this academic means of study? Absolutely. I When I was in secondary school, um, mm. we had to read a number of books, uh, yeah. a reading list type thing. Um, and uh, I'd always really enjoyed reading fairy tales and things like that. And yeah. so um, I came across one day uh, a translation by a Dutch writer called Adrian Roland Holst, um, yeah. of Deirdre and the Sons of Usnach. Ah. Um, so the later version of the of the story, because yeah. there's an, an earlier ninth century version. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I read that, and I uh, I really loved it as a uh, as a story. So maybe yeah. maybe that helped. But always, yeah, medieval stories were very interesting to me, um, and fairy tales, and um, uh, that was always really uh, really interesting. Although there was not much. Um, attention given to uh, the Celts and Celtic literature in, in secondary school, in history, sure. for example. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, it's just things that I came across uh, yeah. by myself over over years. Yeah. Over the time. So, uh, it, that's sort of great from, from our point of view as story archaeologists, because it, it means that it, it, in many ways, it is the literature that drew you into it. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, um, because I know that, that there's a number of academics who would have got into it, if you like, more from the linguistic end of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and from the, the the sort of philological interest in the history of languages. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think maybe that's that's perhaps one of the reasons that you and I get on is that interest in the actual stories. Definitely, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. So... Down through the years then, um, once you found yourself being able to study uh, both the languages and the literature, mm-hmm. um, where have your studies taken you? Um, I mean, geographically and, if you like, professionally? Well, it's been really great because, of course, I uh, I was studying in the Netherlands. And yeah. so um, when I graduated, I figured that I wanted to continue. And so I um, came over to Ireland to... Um, uh, to do my PhD degree there at yeah. Trinity College in Dublin, yeah. uh, which was a wonderful experience. Um, and apart from that, uh, conferences uh, brought me to uh, a number of places. Uh, yeah. Nothing too exotic. I've been to <laughs> I've been to Germany, uh, to Bonn, yeah. um, and to Aberystwyth in yeah. uh, in Wales, and um, uh, you know uh, several places in Ireland. Uh, the furthest it has taken me so far is um, Los Angeles, which was. Yep. Uh, uh, very enjoyable, uh, <laughs> where I was asked to um, uh, to present at a conference there. Yeah. Um, and I, I hope to go back at some point there. Now, recently, uh, Ranka has mm-hmm. published a book with the Irish Tech Society. So congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> Obviously, this is the $5 million question. Can you summarise <laughs> the tales <laughs> which are published in this volume? I can. The, the book is an edition of two early Irish texts. So both texts have something to do with the uh, eruption of Loch Ney. Um, yeah. The first text is called De Causi Storchi Corcoche, um, so on the reason for the migration of the Corcoche. Yeah. Uh, and the Corcoche are a, a population group um, that was uh, important in the 7th century in Munster. Yeah. Uh, they were replaced at some point by uh, by another population group, uh, the Igeinte and the Igeinte. Um, but uh, at the time that the text was written, which was probably the 7th or 8th century, um, yeah. they were still, you know, uh, a population group of renown. So in the story, the lake has uh, has erupted, uh, Loch Ney. Uh, there's a, a plain that was overwhelmed by by a flood. And uh, a lot of people died in it, uh, except for except for three uh, characters, 
and uh, a number of population groups. Um, they're all subsets of the Korko Oge, and the text really tells about uh, where they settled. So yeah. uh, they went to different parts of Ireland, but but one of them went to uh, to Munster. Um, and there's a connection there with uh, Alil Flanbeg and Conal Cork, who are important kings in um, uh, of Munster, of course. Yeah. Um, so that's really the uh, the general subject of the first text. It's from a mythological perspective. It's not uh, not super exciting, I suppose. <laughs> uh, um, the second text uh, is uh, more so. Um, that is called Aithith Echach Makwarda, the death of Echu, son of Maidith. And uh, the tradition represented in this text, also in the other one, but uh, more clearly in this one, is that the lake Lochne, or in early Irish Loch Nechach, is named after this character Echu. In this story, he runs away, he's forced to run away in a way, by his uh, stepmother who has fallen in love with him. Oh, so yeah. she she imposes uh, a gesh on him, a taboo or an imposition that he cannot break and if he breaks yeah. it he will he will die so by putting this gash on him she forces him to run away with her um and the two of them end up in uh, ulster and uh, they're trying to uh, find land to settle uh, but yeah. unfortunately the owner of the land who's oingus uh, mm -hmm. or the makanoke the uh, the ruler uh, over newgrange he comes up to them and says you cannot stay here uh, and echo uh, doesn't heed his his warning and yeah. the next day he discovers that all of the horses have been have been killed and so uh, Oingus comes back and says now I really want you to go or I'll kill all your men tonight uh, and Echo says uh, that's great but we don't have any horses and so <laughs> Oingus says okay well you can borrow mine uh, it can carry the load of 500 men um, that should be okay. Uh, <laughs> so everybody puts the uh, puts their stuff onto the horse, and the horse is not allowed to be stopped, and they have to send it back immediately when it when it stops. Yeah. Um, so it stops in Leithwine uh, in Ulster, the place yeah. where later Lochne is situated, and uh, the horse stops. Everybody takes their their loads off the uh, the horse, and uh, horses uh, not sent back, and so it begins to uh, urinate. Yep. Um, and a well springs up out of the land. Now, Echo manages to avoid disaster by building a, a structure around the well um, yeah. and building his house over it. So uh, for a number of years, he lives in this house above the well and mm -hmm. the well has to remain covered. And uh, one day it's it's uncovered. A woman leaves the lid off the well and then it overflows um, yeah. and kills almost everybody. Um, and then the lake is called after Echo, who drowns in it. So it's it's yeah. Echo's lake or Loch Nach. And the rest of the story is taken up by the travels of his daughter, Liban, who has mm -hmm. survived the, the outburst um, and lives under the lake, uh, first in human shape for one year together with a lapdog. And then she's yeah. changed into a salmon or into a, a half woman, half salmon, so mermaid type creature, yeah. um, while her lapdog is changed into an otter. And she lives uh, for 300 years until the time of Kovkal of Bangor, the founder of the monastery of Bangor. And so she's then captured and um, given the choice of being baptized or living on for another 300 years. And yeah. she decides to be baptized then after telling all of her stories and she dies and is revered as a, a Christian saint. That's a, it's a fantastic story. Um, 
<laughs> yes. There's quite a lot in common with stories that we've discussed before on story archaeology, mm-hmm. like particularly that theme of the woman who leaves the well uncovered uh-huh. and thereby causes disaster. There's a similar story at Fina, which is here in County Leitrim, right? Um, that where again a woman leaves the, the cover off the well, but um, a quick thinking man mm-hmm. cuts off her feet. And that prevents it from running away and uh, flooding the place. And so he saves the day uh, with this little bit of um, mutilation. Um, <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, isn't it great? Yeah. Um, and of course, that this figure of Liban is a very interesting one. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that you've kind of you've looked into her somewhat, haven't mm-hmm. you? Yes. Um, so where else does she appear within the literature? Um, there are a number of characters named Liban or Liban, um, mm-hmm. but the most important ones, I suppose, are uh, she occurs in Sherdlige Konkulin, uh, yeah. that is Liban, as the wife of Lavrith Luathlov or Kladjev, so Lavrith, mm-hmm. uh, swift hand on sword. Yeah. Um, one of the women, uh, Kukulin, uh, visits after he falls ill. This Lavrith guy needs his help. Um, and so she uh, she addresses him and, and talks to him about this. And another one that's very important, I think, um, for the tr- this tradition is uh, yeah. Liban from the Agalov Nashinorach. I think this is probably the same uh, the same character. Yeah. Um, where it's again, this is a woman who's lived under the water for uh, a really long time uh, yeah. until Kuilche and the king of Ulster. Uh, come by. They're on a deer hunt in this episode where this happens and the deer have disappeared under the water. So she surfaces and talks to them and helps them uh, catch the deer. And she she says to uh, Kuilte that she, there wasn't anybody interesting enough really to uh, <laughs> to come out of the water for, I suppose, <laughs> after after Finn died. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So she has remained under the water for a long time, and that's actually that comes back in other stories as well. A woman living under the water until somebody sure. comes by who's uh, worthy enough, I suppose, yeah. uh, for her to show up. So in that story with uh, Liban and Quilche, um, whereabouts is the body of water that she's inhabiting? Um, well, it's near the Morin Mountains because um, the text is given the title The Hunt of uh, Ben Borge um, okay. and a conversation of Liban. Uh, she's also yeah. the daughter of Echu, although her grandfather, she has a different grandfather than sure. our, our Echu and our yes. Liban. Yeah. And uh, just um, in terms of her name as well, something that we've uh, done quite a lot of over our kind of story archaeological research, we often find quite a lot of understanding comes from understanding the names. Mm-hmm. So how would you analyse the name of Liban? Um, well, there's a bit of controversy here because... Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, the text is actually not entirely clear as to whether... Uh, it is supposed to be Liban, so beauty of women, or yeah. Liban, white beauty. Um, okay. I think uh, that it should be Liban, white beauty, um, okay. not only based on that character in the Agalov, because that's mm-hmm. where she's called Liban, uh, yeah. very clearly. Um, there are also some textual indications that I probably won't get into because it's it might sure. be too complicated. Um <laughs> But there's also, and it would take forever, uh, but there's there's also, uh, I think, some evidence um, uh, because there are a number of legends uh, and, and folklore accounts of white women uh, associated with, uh, with water. So then you get into the um, women of the water, banshee legend type things. And mm-hmm. there are actually accounts 
uh, of these types of um, characters in uh, in Wales as well and in Ireland. So there are actually a number of reasons that I that I give in the book for for thinking it it should be white beauty. Okay. Um, also. Uh, because she ends up as a, a Christian virgin sure. uh, or a Christian saint, uh, and of course the color white uh, is associated with with you know purity and, sure. and taking up the veil and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, so I think there might be an indication in that uh, in that yeah. as well. And of course uh, another that's another part of the tale that would be familiar to listeners uh, from other stories, most famously the Children of Lear, of course, mm-hmm. um, and the, the story of Oshin and his uh, trip mm-hmm. to, and more importantly from, Tirnanog. Right. Um, this theme of being in exile for hundreds of years mm-hmm. and then um, coming back to either to Ireland or to civilization mm-hmm. um, to meet with a, a Christian figure and then being baptized and lo and behold, dying straight away. Yeah. So how do you see that in terms of this tale? Um, I think uh, in this particular case, I think the purpose was to connect a figure from the past with uh, a particular monastery known as Tech yeah. of Yog uh, and with Kofgal of Bangor. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you see it a lot where, uh, as you point out, that, you know, you have this uh, a kind of a continuity, uh, yeah. a kind of an integration of heroes from the past in in a now Christian society, yeah. um, where they're still they still have a special status because they're sure. you know they're made into a, a saint immediately um, mm-hmm. as soon as they're baptized and die. Yeah. Um, so it it gives them you know it gives a lovely sense of continuity to the history and uh, and the stories as well. And yeah. I think it's a lovely way in which this is done. It's it's you you know you don't find this. Um, everywhere. So is it then, is it a peculiarly sort of Irish or um, possibly Celtic motif then? I think so. I, I don't recall uh, seeing it many times. Um, hmm. You know, the the motif of the uh, revenant saint or, or raising people from the dead to give eyewitness accounts of past yeah. events. Um, uh, you find it a lot in, in Celtic literature, but I don't recall seeing it that much outside it. You could get more information in, in Yoshi Naj's book on conversing with angels and ancients, where, yeah. you know, the, the character of the Revenant Saint is um, is explored in detail. No, it's an interesting one, because, again, I, I tend to be very um, prejudiced in my own focus on the Irish literature. So I'm, I'm very poorly uh, versed in anything beyond this tiny island. Right. So it's <laughs> it can be good to get a sort of broader perspective yeah. sometimes. I think it, it might also be the fact that a lot of the, you know, you find a lot of the, the earlier stories, I suppose, and, and mythological characters. Mm. Um, a lot of the literature in other countries was written down in the vernacular not until much later, which is not to say that there isn't, you know, there aren't any mythological uh, characters, sure. but I think... In, in a lot of other countries, you will find uh, characters from other literatures. So you'll find accounts of, you know, classical heroes or things like that. Sure. Um, sure. So I think it's a different type of story that you find in, um, in in Irish literature that you don't find yeah. as often outside of Celtic literature. That's an interesting one. From my point of view, I think that supports the view that there was a continuity of tradition, like you say, mm-hmm. um, and that there was a, a concern about both updating the older literature but also validating it within a newer sort of worldview mm-hmm. um, and that there, 
there wasn't this sense that, you know, the, the pre-Christian tradition needed to be somehow excised or demonized, you right. know, that, that in fact there was more of a drive to, if you like, bring it into the fold and mm-hmm. allow people to still have that sense of connection to their old heroes and friends. Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah, so that that's that's an interesting one in, in that kind of international context. <laughs> For all of us ignoramai out here who only ever rely on a fully edited, published and translated edition of a text. Can you describe for us what it actually takes to get from a few versions of a tale in manuscripts um, all the way to your edited, published, translated text? Well, it's uh, it's quite a it's quite a long process. Yeah. Um, basically, what you do, you start out with uh, figuring out what text you want to edit, which can be sure. quite daunting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but let's say you have one. Um, well, let, let's take yours as an example. You first have to figure out uh, in what manuscripts the story is found. Yeah. Um, in the first, in the case of the first text, the the one on the Corco Oge, there are uh, three manuscript versions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one, the full text is only found in one manuscript with some uh, uh, a few lines in in other uh, in a few other manuscripts. Right. How do you find out what manuscripts they're in? Usually, what you um, if you're lucky, uh, <laughs> there is a description of the of the manuscript in a manuscript catalog, and um, the manuscript catalog usually identifies uh, other versions if they are out there. Okay. Um, there are also some places where uh, online, for example, the uh, Van Hamel Society mm-hmm. uh, now has a, a, a kind of an online index or is working on it right. uh, of all these texts and manuscripts where they can be found. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be quite useful as well. So there are a few sure. online tools as well. But okay. usually you work with manuscript catalogs to, uh, to okay. find that out. And are there sort of several different catalogues for different collections or? Yeah, it usually varies per library. So you have, uh, you know, a catalogue of Irish manuscripts in the British Library or the Royal Irish Academy, um, the National Library, things, Mm -hmm. things like that. Right, right. So you have to kind of know where to look to start with. Uh, yes, although in the case of the first text, again, uh, the text had been published, uh, but not translated by okay. uh, a scholar named Kuno Meyer. Yeah. And he uh, he identified the, the manuscript. So it's also yes. possible to look at a text like that. That's been where you see the text in front of you from one of the manuscripts. Sure. Um, and somebody points out the other versions that there are. Okay. Um, and then you can look at them as well. So when you've identified your manuscript sources, then what's mm-hmm. the next step then? Well, then you have to transcribe uh, the text itself. Mm-hmm. So uh, you look at the text as it appears in the manuscript. And mm-hmm. um, usually the earlier texts or in earlier manuscripts, the texts are written on, on vellum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so calfskin. Uh, and of course, as you might imagine, this was very expensive to produce. So sure. what happened What happened a lot in uh, the case of Irish text is that um, words were abbreviated. Oh, yeah. um, kind of like... Uh, as you would do now if you're if you're texting somebody and you just yeah. want to quickly say th- something. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to save space, they would abbreviate this. Um, and so when you're transcribing a text, you have to make sure that you uh, expand all of these things and solve the text or the okay. abbreviations so um, you know exactly what it says. So that's that's your next step. Sure. And as, as a process, when you're expanding those abbreviations, mm-hmm. how certain can you be that you are reading it correctly? What are the kind of issues that you come across when trying to transcribe a good edition of 
the manuscript. Right. Um, sometimes uh, there are issues uh, since some abbreviations can mean uh, several things. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, there's one suspension stroke, for example, that can stand mm-hmm. for the, stand for the letter N or can stand for you just finish this word. You know what <laughs> goes here. <laughs> Basically, um, yeah. and that can be uh, that can be difficult because there can be some confusion sometimes. What you'll do then, usually, what you do when you're transcribing a text is you mark for yourself where you've expanded, yeah. um, you know, a word and what letters you've put down. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know a little bit where the where the things are. So when you start translating the text later, yeah. uh, you know, you might all of a sudden see that what you've transcribed is not what it should be, even though there are two. You know, there are two options. Usually sure. you can kind of figure out uh, what it should be. Yeah. Um, there are cases where it might remain ambiguous, but usually you would indicate that in a note or something like that sure. in the edition uh, with sure. the other option. And from that point of view, you really do need to have a good understanding of the language when you are transcribing, because presumably the context, the grammar and the possible meaning Mm-hmm. will sort of point you towards the the right reading definitely yes yeah. yes uh you can you can still you know be a little bit how shall i say this uh <laughs> um you can work out things like the exact grammatical case uh, mm. a little later too when you're translating you know as sure. long as you know what the word is you can yeah. look out uh, but yeah definitely you have to have some grasp of what words and what combinations are possible and which ones aren't. So you have to know the language quite well in order to be able to do it. So let's say in the example of your uh, first text, you said Mm -hmm. that there are versions in several different manuscripts. Mm -hmm. So how do you then work with those different versions to try and, if you like, produce one reading? Um, Well, you have to make a decision for yourself as to um, uh, what type of edition you want to make. So there are different types up there. You can make uh, a best text edition Uh um, where you pick, uh, for example, the most complete text or the earliest one. Uh, Usually people pick the earliest one. Sure. Um, Or you can choose to do a reconstruction uh, Uh based on um, all of the different versions. You can can compare them and then try to reconstruct what the original text would have looked like, uh, Lachmanian approach. But... Um, for the one that I, uh, the text that I edited, actually both of them, um, I chose uh, one manuscript. In the second case, there was only one manuscript, sure. so that made it easy. Yeah. Um, uh, and there are other reasons as well. But uh, for the first text, um, one of the manuscripts had a much older uh, language use yeah. in it than the other two. So I chose that version uh, okay. rather than the other two. And two, the other two had been... Uh, uh, the versions uh, or the poetry in that had been tampered with as well. Okay. So, um, in order to preserve the older, the oldest version, I chose to do to take that text and then give uh, important differences from the other two texts. Sure. Uh, what do you mean when you say the poetry was tampered with? Um, well, uh, the first text has a, a, a poem in it uh, mm-hmm. that I didn't mention before. It's called Bamol Midden Mithlege. By, it's attributed to a 7th century poet called Lokrith Mokokhira. Mm-hmm. And it's written in what can be called an early form of uh, uh, Devita or Devi okay. rhyme, which means um, uh, in, in, well, in later early Irish literature, yeah. um, it's, a, it's a form of poetry where uh, that consists of, of couplets or quatrains where two consecutive lines rhyme. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have seven syllables. Uh, so you have 
um, a rhyme of AA, BB, CC, DD, sure. that kind of thing. And very often you'll have rhyme uh, of uh, a stressed syllable with an unstressed syllable. Yeah. Um, but in the uh, the earlier version uh, and in earlier uh, poems. Uh, in general, it seems that the amount of syllables or the number of syllables per line has not really been fixed yet. Okay. Um, so there's some variance and variation uh, possible in it. Uh, right. So there's, in this case, there's end rhyme, but the, the number of syllables lie between, uh, I think it's five and nine, roughly. So that hasn't been fixed or that hasn't been set to seven yet. But in the other two yeah. manuscripts, um, uh, it has been changed to seven for all lines. So poetry of that kind can be really incredibly valuable dating mm -hmm. material and as you say that kind of development of poetry from the sort of the non-syllabic uh, alliterating mm -hmm. poetry of of the oldest literature that we have mm -hmm. uh, which of course is the the Ruskada with which I'm obsessed <laughs> um, and then going towards the the classical bardic poetry which of course would have come much later, mm -hmm. post-10th uh, century, uh, which is very tightly constrained and very tightly structured. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, by those changes to the structure of, of the poetry and then, of course, the language within the poem itself, mm -hmm. um, that can give you a lot of information about yes. the development of the text and, yes. and its chronology. Okay, so that, that's a very interesting one. Was there other poetry in the text you were looking at? Um, not in the first one. In the second one, uh, there are three poems as well in the Eidath Echach uh, text. Yeah. Um, and there, it's um, there's something interesting going on there as well because the the text, um, like I said, in its entirety, you find it only in one manuscript in uh, sure. Lever Nawira and the Book of the Dun Cow. The Book for... of the Dun Cow, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, uh, the one of the poems in that text has uh, 22 quatrains. Wow. And we have a. Uh, a variant, another manuscript with this poem in it, but in that yeah. uh, version there are only eleven quatrains. Okay. So the question is, what happened there? So it's very difficult to prove. Uh, I suspect that uh, the person in Lewanawira who wrote the story or who compiled mm -hmm. the story, because it's a compilation, yeah. um, mm -hmm. uh, took parts of poetry from different sources. So okay. um, there's also one quatrain in a different meter, um, okay. and um, there's, uh, you know, all of a sudden there's mention of a of a saint that doesn't occur anywhere else in the story. OK. Uh, saint Brandon. Um, uh, so that's kind of odd. Uh, yeah. And it seems to come from from somewhere else. So um, I think I think that's what happened. So the okay. uh, whoever compiled the text wanted to make a better poem. Sure. Uh, and sure. so took that from different sources. And in terms of, you know, having these versions of the tales appearing in different manuscripts mm -hmm. was there anything that you could gauge from if you like the context of the manuscript as a whole like you were talking about uh, the name of the poet for the poem in the first text mm -hmm. um would the manuscript have contained other works attributed to the same poet or are there related stories about the saints involved or you know was there anything that kind of gave you a bit of insight or a bit of context um, for looking at these texts? In the case of the first text, um, that is contained in a, a group of genealogies having to do with uh, um, uh, with Munster. Okay. Um, but the, the text right before it contains another poem by Lukrith Mokuchira called Konalia Maeve Michuru. So Maeve enjoined evil uh, contracts, uh, yeah. which refers to, of course, the Queen Maeve. 
Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so that's also attributed to Lukrith uh, Mokogira. And yeah. there is one more poem, Ku um, Kemather. Uh, so um, that was that's the name of a monster king who died in 665. But people are not entirely sure whether Lukrith wrote that or not. Um, sure, it's, sure. That's not in um, uh, in all of the in all of the manuscripts. So that's sure. just, just embedded in a group of um, genealogies as well. Yeah. And the other text doesn't really have that much to do with um, uh, the surrounding texts, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an, an either tale preceding it, uh, the death of Noth E, um, mm-hmm. and the text following it is the Fotha Katha Knucha, so the cause for the Battle of Nock, uh, oh, yeah. which has to do with Finn McCool. Yeah. Um, and the interesting part about that text is that it was uh, both Aydith Echach, so the text that I worked on, yeah. and uh, and it were written in the hand of um, H. Um, and H is the one of the three scribes in Levan Uwira, and he's yeah. known as the interpolator. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, like so, a, it's a super villain name. I know. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds very criminal. Yeah. Um, he He's called H because he's written a number of uh, homilies into the, okay. uh, into the manuscript. He wrote this text and the one following mm-hmm. it. And yeah. If you look at the texts themselves, they're uh, they're really interesting in the sense that they seem to be uh, to have a, a similar setup, um, both beginning with kind of a, a Dinhenachas account, so a, a, yeah. an explanation of place names, sure. and then having poetry um, that has been uh, compiled from different sources. So, mm-hmm. um, and in both cases, it, uh, it deals with uh, elopement. So, in in my text, Echu, uh, like I said, is forced by his stepmother uh, to elope with him. Yeah. Uh, and in the story of the Battle of Nock, yeah. there is an elopement as well because the father of Finn, uh, Kuval, uh, decides to elope with uh, with a woman uh, with uh, whom he loves, but yeah. her father won't uh, allow her to marry him. So he mm-hmm. ducks her by uh, by force. He, he well, yeah, he runs away with her, basically. Yeah. Um, so in both texts, there is uh, there is an elopement of sorts, mm-hmm. although it's from a different perspective in, in, in both cases. Yeah. So you think that it might be something that the scribe or the scribe's uh, patron had a particular interest in this kind of theme? Or is it that one text maybe led them to think of another tale? I mean, this is highly speculative, of course. Yeah, it's um, it's very hard to say. Um, mm. I think I think it is possible, but this is uh, speculation on my part as well, uh, that they were both uh, compiled by the same person. Yeah. Um, and uh, it might have been the interpolator himself. I'm not entirely sure. I think, you know, in the case of Levin it's such a big manuscript mm. that it's very difficult to say um, exactly w- what the purpose might have been. You know, yeah. the purpose might just have been to uh, to bring together, you know, famous stories or stories having sure. to do with a certain area. Um, mm. I have not looked into that myself. Yeah, it's just a, a question that I, that interests me. And, yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm curious about. So... Um, just to kind of recap in terms of the process of mm-hmm. the paleography, um, that in a way there's part of that reading which has to do with recognising handwriting, mm-hmm. you know, because you were talking about how these texts have been attributed to the same scribe. Right. So, um, and are some of them easier to read than others? Yes. <laughs> have some got bad handwriting? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, especially later manuscripts and manuscripts written on the on the continent and things like that are uh, very difficult to read there is a, a manuscript uh, uh, a brussels manuscript called brussels 5100-4 um, 
um, and that can have quite challenging handwriting. Usually, it's a it's a matter though of um, of getting used to it. So usually, after a while, you'll uh, you'll start recognizing certain patterns. So, sure. what very often happens is that uh, the beginning of your transcription is completely riddled with mistakes. Um, <laughs> so it's always if you if you ever wanted to start transcribing, uh, it would be yeah. very important to check these transcriptions because there are always mistakes in them. Sure, sure. <laughs> and um, so w- once you've got your transcription and you're, you know, you said you've, you've chosen mm-hmm. the version that you've that you treat as the primary text. Well, for one thing, um, you said that there was versions of your first texts that had already been published by mm-hmm. Kuhn. Um, did you find any what you would consider mistakes in his transcriptions? Do you have kind of a variant reading on any of them or did you find them pretty consistent? There were, um, I think uh, there was, well, there were a couple of things that I that I changed from his mm. uh, from his edition. Um, yeah. But um, it, it mostly had something to do with uh, a reading of a of a word that he in, interpreted in a different way. So yeah. there was a word "mruith" um, uh, that mm-hmm. he uh, uh, reinterpreted as "inruth." Things things like that, but uh, yeah. nothing completely major. He didn't give. He only gave the text of the earliest manuscript, so he didn't give the give the variants from the other uh, from okay. the other texts really. But uh, yeah, in general, the uh, the transcriptions were correct. Although it does sometimes happen when you transcribe text that you'll uh, you'll end up uh, spotting a number of uh, um, of mistakes and and sure. you know uh, problems in the in the transcription or different interpretations and things like that which is you know it's because you uh, you're dealing with handwriting it's very yeah. easy to make mistakes uh, sure. in that as well um, uh, so it's 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 normal I wouldn't be surprised if there are <laughs> mistakes in my transcription sort of more to say that you know even those texts that have been transcribed and published, um, there's always the possibility for a new understanding, you Definitely. know, so that it's, it's still important to go back to those manuscript sources and, um, you know, take a fresh look. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. In, the, in the case of Edith Echach, um, there was an earlier um, edition of the text in 1870 by uh, yeah. a man called Auburn Crow. Um, but he based his uh, edition on a facsimile edition of Lever Nuire, which came out in 1870, I think, also. Uh, yeah. So a lithographic reproduction. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see that because he has a mistake that is in that reproduction. Um, yeah. And also his translations, of course, because it was so early, uh, this was before the time when uh, there was any dictionary or anything available. Yeah. So uh, there are quite a few interpretive issues with his translations. When you've kind of got to that stage for yourself and um, you are starting to look at it and start to focus on the interpretation that will lead to a translation. So mm-hmm. what kind of process is involved in that and, you know, how did you go about it with your texts? Um, I just I just started translating as soon as I could. Um, yeah. So I transcribed the text and then, you know, started on the translation as, as quickly as I uh, as I could, because it's mm. it's one of the things that you have to work with um, yeah. uh, as a basis. Uh, at least I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so then you can start looking into, you know, the characters and try to do research and see if you can find uh, you know, similar stories elsewhere in the case sure. of Aydith Echach, for example, if you find other examples of, you know, a lake being caused by a, a horse urinating or something. There are other versions of that. Not not that many, not that I was able to find. I, I have found water caused by urination okay. uh, or violent urination. 
um, mm-hmm. and uh, lakes caused by horses, but not not quite in the same combination. Okay, okay, interesting. interesting. <laughs> um, so there are uh, a number of places where you can look uh, to find uh, characters. Of course, mm. n- one of the things that you start to do is to start doing research into what has been written written about the text before, yes. uh, if anything, and then go from there. Um, yeah. But there are places where you can look up, uh, for example, well-known names and things yeah. like that in, in both in, in early Irish sources and uh, and later, and the same goes a little bit for uh, for place names as well. Of course, the, we're we're so dependent still on uh, Hogan's onomasticon for the place names. Yes. Um, and one thing that I found entertaining when looking at Kathmagatherids um, is that you've got Elizabeth Gray has an index of place names for mm-hmm. the ninth century text, and then Breen O'Keeve has an index of place names for the uh, early modern Irish text right um gray has clearly taken the place names pretty much straight out of hogan's onomasticon Mm -hmm. which of course is full of parishes and baronies and all these other kind of divisions of place that we no longer use right um whereas brian o'keeve who of course lives in ireland um gives if you like a more native description Mm -hmm. of where places are so he says it's near this town in this county near this geographical feature right so um it's kind of interesting to see the difference there you know i I find it much easier to identify o'keeve's places than (laughs) great i bet yeah there's there's actually a lot uh for the uh for the second text as well there's um Mm -hmm. there's been an ulster place name project Yes. Um, and that was very useful. And um, yeah. as well as um, there's a new series that they're uh, publishing. I think it's the Irish Tech Society, uh, a historical dictionary of Gaelic place names, Ooh, um, which is great. But they're only up to letter D or something like oh, that. Dear. So they might have a while to go. Yeah. <laughs> so I could use it for a few of the references, but not sure. uh, not all of them. End of part one. To continue the conversation, listen to part two.